0: Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be.
1: Listen anywhere.
0: Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on
2: the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com.
1: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone.
2: I'm Catherine Zox, and I am your social worker with a microphone with two great guests this morning with very different topics of interest. My first guest, is Anne Boyardi, and Boyardi is a name most of you know or remember from your childhood. Great memories. I know I have them. Anne Boyardi is the granddaughter of Mario Boyardi and the grandniece of Hector Boyardi, who are founders of the Chef Boyardi Food Product Company. And she's going to be here to talk to us about her new book, Delicious Memories Recipes and Stories from the Chef Boyardi Family. Uh, We have two guests this morning, as I said. My second guest is Dr. Kenneth Ginsburg, MD, pediatrician at the University of Pennsylvania Children's Hospital, and his new book is A Parent's Guide to Building Resilience in Children and Teens, Giving Your Child Roots and Wings. But first, Anne Boyardee, author of Delicious Memories, is here. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm sitting here with your book And it is Delicious Memories, and you look at the cover of this book with pasta on the front, and it is, uh, you know, I want to go and and start cooking, I have to say them. But, um, okay, why write a book, Delicious Memories, Recipes and Stories from the Chef Boyardee family? What was the purpose of writing the book besides just giving us your family secret recipes?
3: Well, I really wanted people to know that there was... um you know, I, I, it wasn't just a made-up character for marketing purposes, that there was a real family behind the brand, and not just a real family, but a family that had a, had a real culinary history. Um, my Uncle Hector, who's, whose face is on the can, was, and really the driving force behind the brand, was an incredible chef, um, as was my grandfather. My Uncle Hector was a James Beard award-winning chef, and you know, had had owned restaurants, and, and I wanted to, you know, I knew people knew that, you know, the food in the can, and I wanted to show them the other
2: side of, of Chef Boyardee. Yep, which you do, and I think the history is, is very interesting. I mean, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and it, it, Boyardee was a household word. I mean, we had Chef Boyardee probably at least once a week, and so I am, I'm really interested, and I, I know my listeners are too, um, in the history of all this, because it's, the, your your um uh, great your grandfather your with, it's really your great uncle i guess yeah you know started this company in 20th, in the early 20th century yeah. talk to us a little bit about that well
3: you know my um my Uncle Hector and my grandfather and their older brother had, had really all, they, they were all born in Italy and started working all from like the ages of seven and eight years old. They had no formal education, but they, they, they always worked in kitchens, and they grew up in kitchens, and, and food was really the thing that they knew. And, and luckily it was also, you know, as they uh, got older, was also their passion. So um, my Uncle um, Paul, who was the third partner in the company, was the maitre d' at the Plaza Hotel. My Uncle Hector came to the United States in like, you know, it was like 1917 and started working at the Plaza Hotel um, also and actually was the executive chef there and ran the kitchen, which, you know, at about 20 years old, which is an incredible achievement even uh, in in today's standards if you think about, um, you know, the the cachet of that job. And and, and it's just
2: a real testament to his skills and his skill set as a chef. Uh, and and probably right. not just as a chef, as you say, I mean these three brothers come over or and and they you know to be able to land that kind of a job it 's not yeah. just your skill as a chef but also your ability to uh, you know as a business person, I would imagine to be able to negotiate that kind of a job at age twenty years old oh absolutely, yes, yeah. and um,
3: you know they had because they started working uh you know really so young and and um, they had worked all their way all through. Through Europe and through different hotels and, and on cruise ships and um, you know my dad it, it was telling me that you know at that time in the world people that were in the food industry all really knew each other and you know it wasn't as as large of of a of a space as it is today and and they all had a lot of respect for each other and um, you know so I don't know if, you know for, you know I'm sure my uncle Paul you know probably told his brother oh you know there's an opening here and it sort of just happened happen that way, but um, he, he, my and my grandfather worked at the Plaza also, and you know, also at the time, Italian food in the United States was not what it is today. It, it certainly um, wasn't as chic as, it, as it's considered today, and it's not as, you know as ubiquitous as it is today. And w- they had this idea. Really, my uncle Hector had this idea to, to open a restaurant. And felt that if they went to Cleveland that there would, you know, that there was opportunity there and, and that there would, could be a real interest in, in their food and that there could be a real interest in Italian food. And they really wanted to educate Americans on, you know, the cuisine from, you know, the region that they had come from, which is um in the north of Italy.
2: And, and so you're saying there, well, you know, Italian food didn't have the same cachet that it did today. No, not at all. It was just absolutely immigrants not. who came over and cooked for their families, and it was basic kinds of food. Oh, what do you think, I mean, they had to be like, I guess, visionaries to be able to see that there was a market for this. Um Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my... um I, I,
3: I never knew my uh, my grandfather because he had passed away before I was born, but I knew my Uncle Hector and, and have very fond and vivid memories of him. And, um, you know, he was, and you would never know that he had no formal education. He was an incredibly uh, intelligent um, person. He was an incredible storyteller. He had a lot, a real passion for what he did. Um, and, a real, you know, and, and when he would talk about the, wanting to start the restaurant and, and you could see it like in his eyes that he just had a real, um, belief that they could really introduce Americans to the concept of, of Italian food and that he could sort of change the way that, that people had thought about the food up
2: until that point in time. All right, so, and well, he was right. <laughs> and he was right and he did it and they did it and, uh. I mean, I guess, and also, I think there was an exciting time for those kinds of entrepreneurs who came over in the early part of the twentieth century. All this, you know, not just as necessarily in the food business, but in other businesses, there was all this Absolutely. opportunity. Yeah. Um, but so he—I mean, they never came over with this idea of
3: we're going to come to the United States and we're going to start a canned food business and it's yeah. going to be, you know, become iconic and hugely successful. They, when they opened the restaurant, that was already a huge. Uh, accomplishment and they probably felt like oh we're, we're just going to be in the restaurant business and what, and what they soon discovered um, you know through their customers at the restaurant is that not only was there a real um, interest in their food and, and what they were preparing and, and a real um, appreciation for what they were doing but that people wanted to learn to, how to do it themselves at home so their customers would always come back to the restaurant and they'd say oh you know, Hector, I've tried to, to make this at home and it didn't come out quite the same way. He you explain to me how to make the pasta or how to make the sauce. And he would give everyone like, oh, well, here, take a little pasta home from the restaurant and here's some sauce and heat it this way. And this is the way that you assemble it and add a little cheese. And, he, you know, it sort of teach them how to do it at home. And then, you know, one night in talking, they had this idea, well, what about if we actually started selling our sauce and had another business? And that was just really the, you know, just the little seedling of an idea that then evolved into Chef Boyardee. Yeah.
2: So that was the beginning, the sauce. That was the beginning yeah. because people were so enamored with it and wanted to make it at home, and so then they began to sell it. So, uh, yeah. And then from that point, after they, you know, then it became mass marketed. Right? They were selling like what? 100? Well, the, you know, it was. When they started the
3: company was 1928. So you're talking about a company that then <clears throat> went, survived the Depression and World War II, and you know, and especially during the war when women were were entering the workforce, a lot of them for the first time because, <clears throat> excuse me, because um, their husbands were off at war. Uh, there was this real need for food that was um, quick, you know, easily to prepare, inexpensive, uh, and nutritious, and it was it was perfect timing, and they were right there with all of these products and, you know, a, a whole dinner in a box and, and the company just took off.
2: Yeah, when you say it just took off, it, it, yeah, but it took off because of who they were and how they were able to, I, I guess, you know, their vision and able to put that into, uh, make that a reality, I guess, right? But let's talk about food and tradition, and, um, you know, that's the story behind, or your family story behind the the beginning of the business. But food is, as you say in your book, um, delicious memories. Um, And there's a reason I assume you have that title, because food brings up all kinds of memories and traditions, and we're kind of getting away from that right today. Right, absolutely. Fast food stuff, awful food. Um, eating on the run, all of those kinds of things, and uh, it doesn 't really stand us in I guess i don 't think in good stead in terms of being able to to cook and, and um, be able to have some traditions associated with family meals.
3: right, well, I think you know first of all, um, I came from a family where uh, you know food was not just a you know, a business but it was really the thing that connected us. And I think it's almost impossible to to grow up in like in my family and not have a real love for food and certainly an appreciation for food. But we always had dinner together as a family, and that was the time that we could all you know connect with one another. That was, and it and no matter what, that was no one answered the phone. Uh, you know, the TV wasn't on. It was it was considered sort of a sacred time in our house. So, um, how
2: many people in your family when you you're talking about? No television, no radio, no telephone. You actually sat down every night, every night and had dinner. Is that mom, dad, you, and sibling? And I have an older brother. There was typically, uh, you know, at least my grandmother,
3: if not my, my also my mom's parents, my maternal grandparents around, whoever was in town would be over having dinner. Um, and that was just, you know, I didn't realize until I got older that that it wasn't the same for everyone.
2: What I thought that's what everybody time period did. are we talking about? <laughs> Cuz you're young. I'm sorry. I said what time period are we talking about? Oh, I'm you were able like to... to you know even like as a,
3: as a when I went to college or you know as a yeah. teenager I didn't realize that, that 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 we were we were sort of uh, the minority and not the, the majority because you know, especially being Italian, and and I was born in Italy, and we came to the United States when I was about five years old. But I I would spend probably three months a year um, in Italy, uh, and you know, to to Italians, that is, the meal time is still a very sacred time, like even in in today's world. So I didn't realize that you know, from from my friends, uh, that that they didn't grow up the same way, and uh, you know, I know that it's not maybe every family like you don't have time it's your dad's mom's working late dad's working later you know that it's it's hard to do it every night but i do think that it's it's really important to at least make an effort to try even if it's just once a week that there's you, you start setting sort of the standard for that type of of interaction and time together and and sort of connect and, and relax over a meal and not be you know eating in the car going from point a to b or um you know, sort of, you know, have that time. I
2: think it's very, very important. Yeah, I think I I agree with you. I think it is important. I think, I mean, you say once a week. It seems to me people perhaps could do it even more than that. But you did it every day, and I guess I'm saying, how did you do it? And then I asked, what what point? I mean, because you're young. What when when were you doing this? And when this? And what it time period is what I'm saying? What oh, year? Okay, you know, just
3: even you know, until really until I went to college. Um and you know which was when, when what year oh, that was nineteen ninety one when I was in college so um so up until that point, every day, you know every night with with having dinner with my family, and then when we would come home and for holidays, i mean that was i mean it just was always you were always expected to you know to be home for the holidays and 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 uh you know to to have that family time and And now I live in New York City, my parents live in New Jersey, and and I still have dinner with my parents at least once a week. I have a one-year-old son, and and I try to make a point of, I mean, first of all, I make all of his food, but that I am always the one that has, you know, dinner with him. You know, my husband is typically still working because I feed him our son at like 6 o'clock, and then put him to bed, and then I have dinner with my husband. Like, for me, it's still very important to carry on uh, the rhythm sort of of that uh,
2: tradition, and and well, you're having two dinners. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, one is pureed food for a, for a one year old. So I don't really consider, you know, I just like him to know that during that time, and I start him, um, you know, even at a year old, that I pull his high chair up to the table and I make sure that um, that everything's off because I want him to start even in you know the simplest sense to start to understand that at this time we come to the table. We're together as a family. I don't really let him have toys and things like that, and I just try to get him to sort of, you know, concentrate and, and, and focus on what we're doing so that he, you know, gets into the habit.
2: And, and that's when you have to start. You're so right. You started, you know, this will be the tradition as you, you know, as he gets older and older, I guess. Um, so what kind of, you know, you talk about the importance, and maybe this is why Italian families are close. Because of the connection with food, because of that, the importance of bringing family together, and and, um, and as you say, you know, having dinner together and 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 not being distracted. Um, I mean, in what way would you say? Um, how has that been a benefit for you? It, in your work, in your relationships? Because I think it affects all parts of you. Know. It,
3: yeah, I mean, I think it really helps to create balance in your life. Because I think it's really easy to get caught up when you're working a lot and you're and never taking any time for yourself or you know or, or, or time for your family to just really sort of come together and relax and not be you know like I said running from point A to, to Z or you know uh, where you're actually just focused on each other and not focused on work or, or trying to get somewhere or trying to do the next thing that it's just a time, whether it's an hour or, or you know, whatever it, ha- it is, that you're just really focused and, and connected on one another. And I think that's time that's very uh, that can be very easily sort of lost or pushed aside if you don't make an effort.
2: I think you made a good point because we're always talking about we, talking about balance. Everybody's busy. They have all kinds of commitments, stuff they have to do, and how do you create a balance in your life? And maybe it's just that simple to sit down and have a meal together and make sure that, you have it at least maybe five times a week as a family and connect, and that will create a balance in your life automatically. Yes, I mean I think it's you know it's funny because you know now everyone like with the blackberries
3: and, and there's so much technology and we're all moving so quickly. Uh, is that even my husband and I? We make a point of when we're having dinner together, no blackberries, no cell phones, because it's so easily to get distracted and just go back to concentrating on your emails and your work, and you don't even realize that you are completely disconnected from the person who's sitting across from you.
2: Yeah. So we really make an effort just, you know, to have that time just for ourselves. Right, now let's talk about, and I, I just want to kind of move on and talk specifically yeah. about the book, because Delicious Memories, because you have all these great recipes, and you have... I think one of the things that I, that I like about the book is, you. I mean, there are ways to cook traditional Italian cooking. Some of them take a long time. But as you say in the book, recipes evolve, and we don't have as much time as we used to at home. So some of them, you know, you have recipes that you can do in a very short period of time, but they're delicious and they're easy. And so you don't have to spend the whole day in the kitchen, which most people don't can't, don't. Right. Um, yeah. What's your favorite recipe? Is there a favorite? Well, you know, first
3: of all, I I could eat pasta every day. Uh, I never get tired of it. You know, there's so many ways to serve pasta. So I would have to, one of my favorite recipes in the book, um, which is one of the, uh, uh, you know, I think this is specifically because I'm from Piacenza, is a recipe uh, for uh, filled pasta called tortelli. And. Tortelli is, is a pasta that's filled with it, like a spinach and ricotta filling, and similar, I think, to what people would think of like as a ravioli. But it's always made with fresh pasta, and the um, the presentation and, and and how I show it in the book, you really only see in Piacenza, or you know, at you know, I always say this, or like at my mom's house, and um, because it is such, so, it is dirty. so labor intensive, but it, the end product is so worth it, and it's. Um, To me, it just brings it brings back so many memories of being, you know, being in Italy, being at my grandmother's house. So that's one of my favorites. Um, Another one is, especially now being summer, I I gave a recipe for a uh, a pasta, and you make the sauce with roasted tomatoes that you can do on a cookie sheet, and it's super simple um, assembly and very easy, you know, very easy and 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 quick. And that's one of my favorites. Growing into summer, you know, now when we have access to really flavorful tomatoes. Uh, that's one of my favorite dishes also.
2: Well, and another thing that I want you to talk about also, because people are trying to figure out, okay, so what do I, you know, especially you're in New York, um, you know, people have, their kitchens aren't as large, let's say, as you know, you don't have that much space. But you have a actually a, a page in the book that says 12 essentials to make 15 dinners. So you really hone in on the essential things that one would need in your pantry or in your refrigerator or in your cupboard and in your spice rack very specific kinds of things, makes it easy. Yes, well, you know, the reason why I did
3: this, and this is true, is because um, a lot of times my friends will call me or I teach a cooking class in New York, so someone that's come to my class will call me and they'll say, okay, um, I have to make this dinner tonight and I have no idea what to do and, and, you know, what's something that I could make and, like, you know, uh, I'm standing in the grocery store and I'll always say, okay, well, what do you have at home? And the next, the answer was always, "Uh, nothing. (laughs) And so I put this together so that at least, if you have sort of like these essentials and these spices, if you have to run out to the store just to pick up one or two items, it makes food shopping much easier. At least you have, a, you know, you, you know that you could make something at home. Um, and you, you know, th- this is sort of like the foundation for a lot of recipes. I felt. Yeah.
2: Well, so, like, yeah. So you have the basic stuff, as you yeah. say, the kitchen stuff, the basic kitchen stuff. Have yeah. this in your kitchen. And then when you have to add to it, as you say, can we all call you, or <laughs> absolutely, you yeah.
3: write to my blog. I'm always on. The, I just started a food blog because I get so many emails. So I just started a food blog, and uh, it's called HonestDish.com. And I'm going to put, be putting up recipes and and more um, tips and and sort of and tricks and and share my my adventures in food. Um, I just came back from Mexico actually last night, and I was. Uh, I spent some time at a resort there called Pomia in Cabo San Lucas, and I spent some time with the, one of the executive chefs there, and, you know, I, I never grew up cooking Mexican food, um, and really just enjoyed, like, the food there so much, and so I spent two days cooking with him and sort of learning some of their secrets, and I'm gonna be putting some, them some up. Um, on my blog because I had such a great time. And it's, you know, completely different from, from what I grew up eating uh, but enjoy thoroughly nonetheless.
2: Well, yeah, the process can be the same. I mean, you're cooking and making food and, you know, the same thing you do with your recipes. But Mexican, that, yeah, that's totally – so now what are you going to do? Go off and do different kinds of foods? I mean, that's interesting. I think so. I mean, you know,
3: yeah. I, I mean, for sure I will still continue, you know, putting, you know, my recipes and 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 sort of northern Italian uh Based dishes from the book and, and just from our, our recipe collection at home. But I do love to go out and, and try new things and experiment with new things in my
2: kitchen, so I'll be sharing those recipes as well. Right, so you have a blog and you have the web, your website also, right, Anna Boyardee. But your name is spelled, we have to, it's spelled differently. It's the original spelling, so if anybody's looking up Boyardee, right, it's not. Right, the, well,
3: they had, you know, when they started the company, we spell our last name B O I A R D I and when my grandfather and my uncle Hector were starting the company they thought is the name too complicated for Americans to pronounce and if they can't pronounce it they're not going to remember it and if they can't remember it they're not going to go back to the store and be able to find it so they put the phonetic spelling on the can to sort of make it easier uh, for
2: Americans and i guess they did they did something right cuz it's a name a lot of people remember uh, very smart, very very smart men. Uh, I mean, yes, it's it's very true. I mean, if you can't, uh, that's what they say about call it, naming your kid a funny name. Don't do that because no one's going to actually talk to them, and <laughs> including teachers because they can't remember the name. So you kind right. of tend not to address the person. So keep it simple. Yeah. But I don't know what your son's name is, but <laughs> his name is Jack. Perfect. You did it <laughs> in the family tradition, right? Absolutely. All right, so we have your blog, mm-hmm. your website, and uh any books coming, any new, well this is well this book is just out, but I yeah, would, so, I, you know, um I would
3: love to do another book and I would love to do uh, a a book for kids. Uh to be honest because I spend a lot of time like I my son's only one, but uh, my a lot of my friends have kids that are 5, 6 years old. And I help them adapt uh, recipes for them, and I've, I've I have so much fun cooking for my son and, and also you know sort of helping my friends navigate their way through recipes and, and adapting them that for their own kids that I would really love to do something uh, for children and I also think it's it's such an important time in your life to be you know as your immune system is developing to be uh, proper, properly nourished and sort of to be introducing um, one's child just you know new new flavors and um, and things like that. So
2: I also I think, think because I'm Anna, so immersed we'll have some right to now. Do,
3: what? I think cuz I'm so immersed in that world right now it yes. feels like it would be a natural
2: step for me. It also I think would help to you know we have this as you know this enormous national uh, problem with obesity yes. and overweight and particularly in children. Yeah. and by doing something like that by writing that by doing a book for children where they also they are introduced to good food good flavors and also involved in making the food those kinds of things i think help to prevent childhood obesity yeah um, absolutely yeah that's a that's it, rather than introducing them to fast foods which i think so many parents do right yeah i
3: mean i think you i think everyone has this concept that you That cooking um, has to be really complicated, whether it's for yourself or for your children and and the truth is is that you don't there are things that you can make and find that don't that are healthy that don't really require a lot of time or a lot of prep time in the kitchen and um, like one of the recipes I included in my book was this pasta with broccoli which is which is also a great way to you know get your kids to eat vegetables, but you need one pot and it basically takes. 20 minutes from beginning to end and it's really healthy and you know i I really tried to balance the book with with recipes that were easy um and and also put things in there that were a little more challenging for people that have a strong foundation in cooking but the reason why I, i really thought to put this the ones that were really simple in the book is because i feel like if you know a lot of people don't have also confidence in the kitchen and i sort of learned that through through teaching um and have sort of lost the art of cooking. But I feel like if you can start with a recipe that's simple and then master it, it gives you the confidence to go to a second and then a third and then a fourth. And then eventually, you know, you have a repertoire of, of things to pull from that you can make. And um, I've seen even students in my class that have come in and these are sophisticated New Yorkers and can eat at the best restaurants and have a real interest in wanting to cook at home and cook for themselves. And... Um, and now you know it's a year later, and they've come you know a handful of times, but they they can they've really mastered like at least five things,
2: yeah. which that's a great segue into making a children's cookbook. Exactly right. And so I think if you can't one of, cook for yourself, you're not going to be able to cook for your kids. So yeah, exactly. And I think I keep going back to this. You know, if you are eating foods that are are, are flavorful and tasty and good, you don't eat tons of food. You eat the appropriate proportions because you get satisfied absolutely. And y- so you're not like stuffing your face so absolutely. I think that's important too and obviously um, I want to make sure sh- well first of all I want to just make sure that listeners know they can purchase the book online bookstores everywhere amazon.com yes. the- delicious memories recipes and stories from the Chef Boyardee family is there anything that we've left out any information we want to give, give people that they need to know um, I don't think so.
3: Just, you know, get in the kitchen and have fun and and don't be afraid to make a mistake or to have something go completely awry. You Just sort of have to keep trying. Um, yeah. and if there's anything that you are having problems with, email me to my blog,
2: honestdish.com and I will I will try to assist you as best yeah. as I can. Yeah. I I can't be, Are you doing this all on your own? This is my last question. I mean, you're going to yeah. get you, you you respond to each person or you have Yeah, a I do. Sometimes do. it
3: takes me You know, I can't get back to people right away, but I go through every single email myself. That's
2: fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Anna Boyardee, and her book is Delicious Memories. Uh, Don't go away. Coming up next is Dr. Kenneth Ginsberg. He is a pediatrician at the University of Pennsylvania Children's Hospital and author of a Parent's Guide to Building Resilience in Children and Teens, Giving Your Child Roots and Wings. I'm Catherine Dox, your social worker with a microphone, and we'll be back in a minute.
1: Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time.
0: Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for the Growth Strategist with Aldona Ambler. On the show, Aldona and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Grow Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific
1: Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
2: We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. It's The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Kenneth Ginsberg, a pediatrician, specializing in adolescent medicine at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and author of Letting Go with Love and Confidence and also author his his former his uh, first book or one of his first books was a uh, parents guide to building resilience in children and teens giving your child roots and wings so this book Letting Go with Love and Confidence is how to apply the lessons that we learned about being resilient uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Ginsberg.
0: Thank you so much. It's an honor, Catherine.
2: Okay, so let's talk about the, your, your latest book, Letting Go with Love and Confidence. Why? So, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, tell us about you know, the, the new book, why you wrote it, and why it was important to sort of have this second piece in the new book, uh, or in this oh, most gosh. recent book.
0: So this really is this really is about applying the, the, the lessons of resilience. I think that this is about the hardest job there is in parenting, which is letting go. You know, in our bone marrow, in our instincts, more than anything, we want to hold on tight. That's what we're really good at. That's what we've done for the last 10, 15 years is hold on tight. But our challenge is to launch kids who are prepared to be successful adults. And to do that, we have to teach them to stand on their own. And that means honoring their growing independence, understanding what is happening, and preparing them to grow and to be able to master life's circumstances and life's milestones and to have the confidence that they can stand on their own. With the Dr. Ginsburg, goal.
2: why did you write this book now? Because do you feel, obviously, there's a need for it, that parents today aren't doing what they need to do in terms of letting go of their children and letting them be independent and, and uh, make their own choices and uh, are we not doing that as, as a society or, or I mean do we have a problem with that?
0: You know there's so much been written about the helicopter parent and the overattached parent and I'm really not into condemning anybody because what I know is that everybody is trying the best they can and what I also know is that this feeling of how difficult it is to let go of your child, that was there in 1950, and it's here now. But I do believe that because the world is a little bit scarier, and because we are a little bit more involved, actually, than we used to be, that that challenge is even greater.
2: When you say the world is scarier, do you think the world is scarier, or do you think the scary stuff is just different than it was, let's say, in the 50s or the previous generation?
0: Uh, I think that there are some things that are definitely more challenging. I think that um, social media allows ideas to go out there in a second and suddenly everyone in the world knows what you think. But you know, it's a very, very good point. There's this hype that the world is a scary place and it never used to be. And the truth is that there were always scary things in the world, but people didn't talk about them the way that they do now. So the world has always been a little bit scary, and it's always been wonderful, filled with opportunities for growth. And our challenge now is to just make sure that our kids avoid the scary stuff, stay safe, and more importantly, prepare themselves to succeed and take advantage of the opportunities.
2: Let's talk about some specifics in the book that you, you know, that will take us through that so that we can do that. You say avoid the some scary things you can't avoid, can we? I mean, there are just some things out there you have to cope with. As you say in your first book, you have to be resilient. You'll be able, be able to have to deal with these stressors and not hide them from your children.
0: That's absolutely right. In fact, we are the models for our children. Right. So that when times are tough and you are struggling with them and you have come up with strategies to be able to diminish your stress, you are doing a great job in modeling that for your children, because, you know, sometimes the um, our actions are so loud that kids can't hear our words. Right. So when our actions are about self-care and managing stress, we are teaching our kids more than we ever could um, with our words. There's no question about that. What this book is about, though, is it really is about um, translating the resilience message into day-to-day things. You know, what are the subjects that you're going to talk about with your kids that are going to create anxiety? So there's a whole section on how to talk about sex and how to talk about drugs and peer pressure and coping and stress and success and what it really is. And then there's another whole section on when's. When's my kid ready to drive, to date, to to talk to a doctor on her own? Um, And then the first third of the book, I think, is really the most important grounding of the book, which is I couldn't possibly come off and pretend to parents that I know what's best for their kids. Only parents know what's best for their kids. So the first third of the book is grounding them in understanding what, it takes for a kid to be resilient, what communication styles work, how to monitor your kids so that they'll listen and let you monitor them, um, and everything you need to know about adolescent development so you can apply it to your kid.
2: You know, I, I still, and I, you kind of touched on that, or touched on this in the beginning, but I see so, and this is anecdotal, but it also has to do with people I've seen in my practice. I mean, it seems to me that parents, and you, you mentioned the word helicopter, but they are so over-involved in their children's lives so that children don't get the opportunity to to make their own decisions, to make their own choices. Parents are so reluctant to let them go. And, you know, uh, you know, with Twitter, with Facebook, with, I mean, I have friends who have daughters and sons who are in their 20s and 30s, and they are talking to them three or four times a day. They're calling them for advice, you know, like if they're at work, even professional people. It... um, I don't think that bodes well for our society, do
0: you? Um, No, I I mean, a lot of us are worried about that, but again, we don't want to vilify parents as if we think that they're doing a terrible job. What's happening is that parents are becoming kind of professional parents because they're bringing to the home sometimes the same level of efficiency and involvement, involvement that they've learned to use at work, and what we have to remind ourselves is what our job is. Our job is to raise a person who's ready to be a successful 35-year-old. That means that that person has to be happy in their field. They have to be generous and compassionate so that they'll be prepared to repair the world. They have to be creative and innovative to think about all the ideas that haven't been thought of yet. Um, They have to be able to take constructive feedback, um, uh, which means they're not going to fall apart if you criticize them. Um, and they need to be resilient and to be able to stand on their own. When we don't allow our kids to fall, when they are still turning to us, even during the teen years, let alone the 20s, to be able to figure out how to get back up, then ultimately they're not going to succeed in the workplace. So we do our kids no favor by always holding their hands.
2: Well, you're a dad. I know I've been on and seen some of your lectures online, as a matter of fact. You have two daughters? Yes. And how old are they?
0: So they're about to turn 16.
2: So you're at a critical stage.
0: Absolutely. All of the other books that I've written have been about my expertise in resilience, and this certainly is too. But there's another whole piece of this book, which is what it does to us to imagine our children not under our roof. And I'm not going to lie to you. I can cry when I think about driving them to college right now, which is three years away. I could absolutely cry. But what I know is that I can't let that set me up to have a conflict of interest. If I love my little girls only in as little girls, then what's gonna happen is as decisions come along, I'm not gonna let them grow up because it's gonna be about me. So I have to be in touch With those emotions that I'm going through, and that's a that's a big part of the premise of the book, is getting in touch with your own emotions so that you uh, the conflicts are out in the open and you don't have a conflict of interest. Instead, all you're thinking about is how do I make my kids succeed to become independent.
2: See, I think that's and what what I know. I I think that's really. I mean, this point that you just made—that's what it's all about. I mean, parents really have to sit back and see, you know, separation. I mean, you know separation anxiety, you know, how did you relate to your own parents? Did they allow you to, to, to separate and what was your experience? Because that obviously affects your experience with your own kids. I had a different reaction. Uh, you know, I have three boys, and by the time the third one left, I was ready for him to go.
0: And <laughs> you know he didn't really. Probably, I mean, we we're a close
2: family, so there was, you know, obviously we spend a lot of time together. But it was time for him to go because it was time, and time, for me to let him go. And the timing was right when it
0: was but it and hasn't did you happened. trust though that because he was going to stand on his own, he was going to be able to come back to you when he needed you in a different capacity, right? Not reliant on you, but in an interdependent relationship. That's your goal when you play adolescence well, meaning you honor their independence, then you're preventing their rebellion when you are overprotective you monitor so closely that they don't, they're not able to spread their own wings, then what happens is they feel like you're over-controlling. They'll rebel during adolescence. But more importantly, once they're out of your house, they're out of your house. That's actually not my goal. I don't want my kids to move back in with me, but I do want them to really enjoy the visit.
2: And there's another piece to that when you do and allow them to do that, when you do let go and give them the confidence, there's some rewards to that because when they leave, they and they are able to go out on their own, they experience very different kinds of things than say you did or did as a, do or did as a parent, and they bring back all this incredible stuff. They, you know, bring back, uh, new, new experiences, new kinds of, the, you know, information, all of that. Uh, so it kind of re-energizes the family.
0: Absolutely. So when you let go right, you're entering a new phase of a relationship that's going to continue to be healthy over a lifetime that you're going to grow from. It's going to be energizing. It's going to be fun. It's going to improve you as a human being. When you hold on so tight through adolescence, when you use that authoritarian style of parenting that says, you'll do what I say. Why? Because you're under my roof and until you're 18. When you do that, then the kids are out of there when they're 18. When you hover so closely that you're overprotective, then they need the room, they need the space. And when they're out of there, they're going to be afraid you're going to interfere with their lives. especially when they have their own children. When they have to figure out how to be their own mom or dad, then they're not going to want you in their life.
2: I think that's so true. I I have another question about this because, you know, we're talking about uh, individual parents, but then you have couples raising a child and they come from different places, you know, a couple of our partners, they come from different backgrounds, different places emotionally, their own experiences are different. How does that work in terms of letting go? Because you might have one parent who is, you know, very comfortable with that and the other parent is not.
0: Absolutely. It's a struggle. And, you know, I don't have any answer to that's going to be perfect to that question. But if there's one thing we learned from the Brady Bunch, it was that parents disagree often, but they didn't let the kids know as best they could. They didn't let the kids know how much they disagreed. And so most of the disagreements behind, went behind closed doors so they could have a unified front in, in front of the kid because that creates a lot less anxiety in the kid. Kids get really anxious when they get very, very t- different mixed messages. But if there is one parent who's ready to let go and another one who's not, we have to remember that the greatest gift we can give our child is to let them know that we're okay and to be models of resilience ourselves, models of balanced human beings ourselves. And, you know, I would say to the parent who's more ready than the other is to prepare the one who's not by having them re-engage in a full rich adult life um, because, you know, the other thing, when you were talking in the beginning, remember about the kid who's calling home 10, days, 10 times a day from yeah. college? Yeah. I'll bet you that that kid might not just be calling for advice. I'll bet you that kid might be checking in because they think you need it. And, and I point. want my kids, when they leave, to know that I'm okay. I want them starting their new life without worrying about me.
2: I think that's a good point, Doctor, and I, I think, uh, part of that also, and I see a lot of parents who become so engaged with their kids, and they're great parents, but they're really not good spouses, or they're not good partners, because they're just, they, they, you know, leave that relationship behind, and if you work on that relationship, and you have a good relationship, then your kids aren't going to, as you say, call, because they feel sorry for you, or think that you can't function without them, because they see you as a, You know, functioning couple and enjoying each other and doing things that are separate from the children.
0: Absolutely. Let's get back to that. We're trying to raise them to be a successful 35 year old and 45 year old. One of the things that makes you a successful 35 year old is that you have a loving relationship with someone. And when we are so child focused instead of spouse focused, we're not modeling that for our children.
2: No, we're not, and I think I, I, I this is just my experience with, you know, in, in the community, and I, I see a lot of that, that there's, in, and that, you know, then couples, uh, well, this is kind of another topic, but then after the children leave, they have nothing to say to each other, and, uh, <laughs> uh that, that's the end of their relationship, but that's, that's not really what we're talking about, but, um I, you know, I think it's very, difficult. Let's talk about some of the stressors that that the parents, um, you know, have experience in terms of, you know, being able to do what you're talking about, letting go with love and confidence. What are some of the specific kinds of things that they have to to confront that
0: prevent them from doing it? Well, first, let's talk about themselves. And when you said it's a different kind of topic, I actually... Don't agree with you. I think oh, okay. that that's highly relevant. I think having a rich relationship so that you will have something to talk about is part of the letting go process. You have to begin thinking when your kids are in the tween years, like, what kind of a life are we making for ourselves? How rich is our life? Are we taking care of ourselves? Because the greatest gift, most certainly, is to have a healthy home. So 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 I think we're actually very much on the same page there. In terms of the specific issues of letting go, they're everywhere. When do you get your kid a cell phone? When are they ready to go to the mall? When are they ready to date? And I would say that there's a process that you're going to go through for every one of those when questions. So this book, Letting Go with Love and Confidence, is not a recipe book. This is not one of those point one, point two, point three. It's really about Understanding that there's a different strategy depending on what the milestone is, but they all have a pattern in common. And the first thing that you need to do is observe the situation. Do you remember? Um, when you baby-proofed your house, then you had to really get down on your knees to see where the, what corner of the table was your child would um, hit their head on. Um, you let's to get... talk
2: about that. I, you know, that's interesting. You're younger than I am, and that, I think that's a – you talk about overprotecting your children. This is where I'm coming from because my kids are about 10 years, even though, uh, 15 years older than yours. And this whole baby doesn't baby. I see these mothers, these young mothers, as you say, putting plastic on every corner and and baby proofing the ho- baby proofing the house. Don't children have to learn? First of all, you have to watch your children. Whoever is the, responsible for doing that. And second, maybe they need to fall down and you know hurt their knee or bang their you know and 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 realize okay, this you know this is something that I don't do. But they don't have the opportunity to do that because there's the the house is 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 padded from, you know, every corner. I don't know. I don't. I, I, I didn't do that.
0: So I'm a pediatrician. Yeah. So I'm always going to talk about safety first. Okay. I think baby proofing is a wonderful thing to do. All right. But absolutely. you let your kids fall down. Think about think about, you know, what what you let your kids do and what you didn't let them do. So, you know, you know, metaphorically you let your kid knock over a lamp to understand that things break and that broken things are dangerous. You let your kid make a mess. Um, You let your kid fall down on the field so that they understood that they could get back up. But you didn't let your kid put their hand on the stove and you didn't let your kid um, uh, cross the highway by themselves. Um, So there's always this whole litmus test that you go through for any given issue, which is, is this a safety issue? Like a real safety issue. And the only answer to a safety issue is no, you can't. If this is not a safety issue, then we have to look at every challenge as an opportunity for growth. And the only way you grow yourself is if you fall down yourself and you pick yourself up, but with someone guiding you how to do so.
2: Exactly. Because if you're going to, uh, let's say, in your own home you have all of these safety features and then your kid goes to somebody else's house they don't know how to negotiate in another environment you know when they're six seven eight years old going to play at someone else's home if, if they've been so overprotected in their own home yes you're right there are certain basic and you're not going to let them put their hands on the stove or ride their bike without a helmet or all those kinds of things but i think that we go overboard with the, the safety stuff and we aren't letting them um, negotiate their own environment
0: Right. Safety really means safety. It doesn't mean that they're going to be sad for a minute. We can't be afraid of letting our kids be sad for a minute. We can't be afraid of them skinning their knee. We do have to be afraid of them um, being so emotionally hurt that they can't recover or catching an STI that's going to last a lifetime. Um, We have to, um, and we can be scared of certain, you know, the equivalent of putting your hand on the stove is um, getting in a car unprepared to control the vehicle, or while impaired, or being distracted. So there are a lot of adolescent examples that are absolute no's. But otherwise, we really go through a process where a kid learns to navigate their world.
2: And what about siblings? Because I know having three children, um, you know, each one was different and ready to do different things. Different. I mean, there's an overall kind of pattern, obviously, to adolescence, but each. Really looking at each one of your children as individuals, and some may be ready to do things earlier than others. And parents, isn't that important in terms of how you parent and help them to I let go? I think it's
0: critically important. Yeah. You know, letting go with love and confidence is not a recipe book. It is not one, two, three, four, and it absolutely is not a prescription saying your child is ready to date at 15 or at 16 every human being is an individual and every human being is an expert on themselves. And the only person who knows who knows next to, to the child is to the expert on themselves is the parent. So what we do, you know, the first third of the book is all about child development, how to individualize a plan for your kid. And the answer, you know, I have identical twin girls who are very different people and my rules cannot be absolutely the same because they have different needs from each other and Catherine, they have different needs from themselves when a month passes and they've hit a milestone and therefore they've already learned something my job is to make each kid know that my goal for you is for you to grow and to become independent and I honor that independence Um, and And I'm going to get you there one step at a time. And the way you're going to get your next privilege is to earn it. And you earn it through demonstrated responsibility. You show me what you can handle and you get more. Not because you're an age. Not because Billy down the street or Sarah's doing it or Sophie's doing it. That's not what earns you something. What earns you something is demonstrating for me that you know that you can handle it.
2: And what must be interesting with identical twins, because I think as a parent it may be difficult for those who have identical twins to want to put them all in the same case, you know, because they, they look alike, they're exactly the same age, you know, that you kind of like do the same thing for both kids. And you, as you've described it, you definitely don't want to do that.
0: Um, it's, re- it's really a challenge. You know, when I really actually learned the lesson, my kids were four years old on 9 and I took one of them for a walk, and I had a conversation that I think was textbook perfect. Um, I, you know, we sat down on a park bench. We drew pictures. We talked about feelings. We talked about what they had seen on TV before we were able to turn it off. Um, and I thought that I had this down. I was just so convinced I knew what to do. I went to the other daughter, and I said, let's go for a walk. We're going to talk about what happened today. And she said, can we have pizza? <laughs> And that was so, I don't think I've ever said that on an interview before, but I have to tell you that that was so illuminating to me at the age of four, how different my kids needed to be and how flexible I needed to be. You know, every parenting book in the world starts, except for mine, starts with how important consistency is. I believe flexibility is more important than consistency. What has to be consistent is your love, your unwavering love, your unwavering attention, and your desire to have that kid grow. But kids are different, and we have to be flexible to meet their needs.
2: Uh, that is a perfect example. I mean, I think with the example you just gave of your girls, that I mean, that says it all. And yeah. flexibility and resiliency, because those mm-hmm. are sort of, Words that are evolving, I guess, or it's. Um, I, I like both of those words: flexibility and resilience. Very important. Yeah, well, anyway, or let, you know, very, we have to say goodbye. I could keep on talking with you. This is very interesting, um, and I want to recommend the book "Letting Go with Love and Confidence." So. Um, Tell us, Dr., where can we get the book, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere? and
0: um, Bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com. If you want more information about resilience as well as the other books I've written, um, it is fosteringresilience.com, fosteringresilience.com. You'll learn something about resilience and can directly link to um, online sellers of the books.
2: Okay. And where can we hear you speak? Do you have, are there any speaking engagements that you're doing right now?
0: Um, I'm speaking all over the country. I don't have it in front of me. A lot of what I do actually is speak on military bases to support military families with multiple deployments. So much of my effort right now is, um, is uh, supporting military families, um, but I am speaking um, throughout the country. And uh, again, the, the website talks about that, but um, I don't have my schedule right now in front of me. I'm sorry.
2: All right. Well, we'll look for you, and that's a whole other topic. Love to have you on the show to talk about that. Dr. Kenneth Ginsberg uh, from the University of Pennsylvania Children's Hospital his new book Letting Go with Love and Confidence. It was a real pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much.
0: It was a pleasure and honor. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a good week and we'll see you next Wednesday.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Its staff